you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. to encourage you that we're just going to walk through these few verses. I'd encourage you to take some level of notes or at least pay attention to the bulletin. It will give you a good outline. That Between that and your Bible will provide a good journey map, if you will, for our time together this morning. Um, our habit is just to work through verses of the Bible in, in no fancy fashion. Um, but to see what God has said and simply explain it and try to help apply it. So this morning I'm actually not going to have a very long introduction. As many of you know, my introductions tend to be like 10-15 minutes long. Uh, and then we get to the point. Uh, this morning I'm going to kind of jump right in. But first I want to read for us Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 14 through 18. Yes, I did say that many verses. Uh, we have been doing like, you know, a few words at a time, uh, but we're going to do 14 through 18 this morning. So here we go, verse 14. It says, for he, this is of course talking of Christ, for Jesus, if you will, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Let's pray. Father, I pray that it would be in one Spirit, in this one body, that we would enjoy access to You, Father, this morning. And if there is anyone who has not been redeemed by your blood, Father, has not been saved, that they would today, for the first time, have access to you, Father, through the blood of your Son and the one Spirit that you speak of in this passage. And so, Father, I pray those two things this morning. It's in your name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so what is Paul talking about? This dividing wall of hostility and making one flesh and all this stuff. This, the abolishing the law of commandments expressed and ordinances. Uh, uh, I have to admit, coming into this passage, I was like, man, maybe I'll just let Rusty preach this one. Uh, it's just a little difficult, and it just doesn't sound fun. So maybe I'll just let him do it. And, and he'll, he's chomping at the bit to preach every chance he gets. And, uh, and so I'm thinking, maybe I can just pass this one on. But, uh, and it was particularly a tight week as far as schedule goes. Uh, we got to enjoy a couple days down at my, the seminary I graduated from, me, Rusty, and a few others, enjoying a class on the doctrine of the church, uh, or ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. 
Uh, and so all those things combined, I'm thinking maybe we should just have Rusty do this week. But nevertheless, God in His great mercy has given this text to me for you guys this morning. And so here we go. Paul is going, and, and, and I'm sorry I can't like recount everything leading up to this point, but Paul is going to continue now explaining how our coming near has been made possible through Christ's death. So how we, sinful enemies of God, can be near, can be brought near to God. And he's going to continue explaining that. If you look at verse 13 of last week, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So this by the blood of Christ is ultimately the thing, the ground, if you will, the preparation for the the foundation of what brings us near. And Paul now is going to expound upon this idea of what brings us near to God. I mean, we live in a culture where everyone, for the most part, still wants to be near to God. It's going to be hard-pressed to find someone who doesn't want to be near to God. Although I think, certainly, and I think the number is growing. But you can still, people want to be near to God. And we all have developed, in many ways, our own ways to be near to God. Even those of you who are redeemed have ways in which you try to draw near to God that are not God's intended or designed ways for you to draw near to God. So this passage is going to explain how our coming near has been made possible through Christ's death. This passage shows what God has done to create a people who can have access to the Father, namely those who can be at peace with God. So you're going to talk about how he's created that people. Those who can have joy unwavering in the Father. Those people who can be at peace with God. How has he done that? How has he created these new people? Now, if you don't think that that's an incredible task to which God has set himself to, then you don't understand the plight, the evilness, the depravity from which God rescued that man or that woman and what God has done just to make this new people. All right, so Paul is going to stress in these verses specifically the reconciliating work or the reconciling work of Christ. And what I mean by that is the means by which Christ has made these people right with God. Hence the drawing near to God. You can't draw near to God unless you've been made right with God. It's a kind of synonymous in a sense, but they have two different connotations. Specifically, in order to draw near to God, we have to be made right with God. How does that happen? Of course, verse 13 gave us the foundation for that by the blood of Christ. Now I want you to notice you look back in verses 11, 12, and 13, you will see the use of the pronoun you. I think Paul at this point in 11, 12, 13 is speaking largely to the Gentiles. Now Paul begins to use the words we and are, O-U-R. These words indicating that he's speaking of 
us. And this is going to be very important, particularly in some of the verses to come. So let's read again, verse 14 through 15. We'll spend our time there for a few minutes, and then we'll move on. So he says this in verse 14 through 15. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Alright, so the first thing I want you to see this morning is that Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace. sure if you have any length at all to your Christianity experience, or if you sing Christmas songs uh, each year, whether you follow Jesus or not, you know, there's peace on earth, right? That's it's kind of the, one of the major themes that our world likes about Christmas. Peace on earth, goodwill to whom God pleases. That's how that passage really goes, by the way. The song's wrong. But peace on earth, like Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace. And we want to expound, I want to explode your mind, if you will, for a few moments on what this, Jesus is our peace. Because what Paul says is that we were brought near through Jesus' death because Jesus is our peace. Now here's the deal, we want peace for say, you know, for instance, in our country, we see all these crimes going on, and even the recent shooting in Oregon, and and we claim we want peace, and and we're going to do this law to hopefully bring about peace, and we're going to take away these weapons in order to bring about peace. And the reality is, is no peace will be had until man has made peace with God. So we can talk about all these laws, we can talk about all these things. But it's not going to happen until peace has been made with God. And here Paul says that Jesus is our peace. Like He Himself. He Himself is our peace. And so what happens is Paul now, so far, he's not really talked about this yet in Ephesians. He introduces the theme, the vital theme of peace. As Paul explains the wonder of Christ's reconciling work, making us right with God, he employs the term peace four times. As well as other related like motifs and other related thoughts. For example, reconciliation. like That speaks of peace. Making the two into one. That speaks of peace. Like the idea of peace. This new humanity. That speaks of the idea of peace. So he not just uses the word four times, but he also alludes to it in other ways many other times. So what I want to do is I want to take a few moments to give us an idea of what is this idea of peace. Jesus, If Jesus is our peace, what does he mean by peace? Just peace on earth and goodwill? I mean, what's, what's he mean? So in the Old Testament and the New Testament, peace, kind of at its core, denoted well-being in kind of the widest sense. This idea of it's a well-being and a very well-rounded, far-extending well-being of people. That included salvation. 
We also see, if you go back and study peace, that the source and giver is God alone. It's not from governments. It's not from laws. It's not even from us. It is God alone. I want to give you a handful of verses here, some, some phrases and then a handful of verses that I would encourage you to study this week. But peace is described as harmony among people. Harmony among people. That's not something to ignore, but it's, it's part of what he means by peace. James three seventeen through 18. It says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I want you to see this right here. Verse 18 particularly. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I mean, think about that. So that's who we are to be, those who follow Jesus. Why? Because this is what happened with Jesus. There was a harvest of righteousness because Jesus himself as peace came and sowed peace. And then we are to likewise sow peace as we are the ones who should be making peace. And the idea here is this peace among people if you go back and study the context. Then you get to the next thought here. Peace concerns the messianic salvation. It concerns being saved from the Messiah, by the Messiah. A salvation. Luke 1.79 To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. So peace has to do with salvation. Relationship with God. Peace also has to do with wholeness particularly in reference to personal relationships. See this in terms of the fruits of the Spirit and and unity in the body and so on and so forth. Next, peace is the goal of all preaching. Now what I mean by preaching, preaching most fundamentally in the text speaks of a proclamation of the gospel, a proclaiming of Jesus as the one who saves. Most fundamentally, that's what preaching means. So when I say peace is the goal of all preaching, it's because the gospel, the good news of Jesus, brings peace. Ultimately. Acts 10, 36 for this. As as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace Through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. So next, peace describes an order established by the God of peace. 1 Corinthians 14.33 For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. It's one of Satan's greatest strategies of our day. And the proneness of our own sinful natures is towards confusion. If I can be confused, then I don't really have to do anything about it. But where there is clarity, then that demands something of me. So there's many denominations in our country that thrive on confusion. Ultimately, why? So that no one has to actually do anything. So we can trap people in ambiguity. But God is not a God of that. God is a God of peace. And God is not a God of confusion. Peace 
is also mediated by Christ Himself. So Christ is peace Himself, and it's also mediated, meaning it is given, it is controlled, it is watched over, it is, it is, it is, um, I'll just read the passage, how do we do that? Romans 5.1, so therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God because Jesus is himself peace, but also because it's peace through Jesus Christ. He's the mediator of it. This is kind of to the terms of Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. What's he saying? I'm the mediator of all things that is good and righteous and is beneficial to you from God. And one of those things is the only way to the Father and his peace is through me who I am himself peace. Peace is given also, not only mediated by, but is actually given by Christ himself as well. So not only is Christ himself peace, not only does he mediate it, not only is it the goal of everything we do, but it is given, it is actually handed from here to here from Christ himself. 2 Thessalonians 3.16 Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. So not only is Jesus peace himself, not only does Jesus mediate peace, not only he is also the Lord of peace, and he is the one who gives peace. So why in our world do we keep searching for peace, even us who follow Jesus, anywhere else but Jesus himself? We're not guaranteed peace just because the Constitution was founded with a bunch of people who claimed Christianity. We are guaranteed peace for those who follow Jesus because of Jesus. And that is the only place we find peace. We will ever, you will keep searching and searching and searching. You will never find peace until you find it in Jesus. Jesus, as peace himself, is also not just a New Testament concept, but an Old Testament messianic title. So when he's referring to Jesus as the Messiah in the Old Testament, they call him what? The Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, right? The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and what? The Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Now Christian, I want to ask you a question. You follow Jesus, you believe you follow Jesus. I want to ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus is your peace? Is Jesus your peace? Do you live like Jesus is your peace? Let me explain that. When we live, let's say, for example, particularly because of the context of this verse, which we'll explain a little bit more as we go. When we live with any sort of enmity, like dissension and tension between us and a brother or sister in Christ, then we miss the point of this passage. Jesus is our peace. second thing I'd say is that Jesus died to be our peace so that His body, the church, might be unified underneath of His headship. Let me take this a step further. 
is Jesus your source of peace? Is Jesus your source of peace? Are you able to rest all day long, every moment of every moment, with joy filling your heart because Jesus is your peace? For many of us, we're only at peace when we have enough money to pay the bills. So what's your source of peace? It's your own provision of money for your family. Now, we do need to pay the bills, and we do need to steward our money well, but our peace does not come. He doesn't, Paul does not say here, Jesus and being able to pay your bills is your peace himself, itself. No, Jesus himself is our peace. For many of us, we only are at peace when our kids obey every command that comes from our mouth, and the house is in great order. What is your peace? It's not Jesus. What is it? It's your ability to be God in your household. You're terrible at it, aren't you? For many of us, we're only at peace when we get our way. Or when things are going our way. We're only at peace when the day looks however we've conceived the the day or decreed that the day should look like. Or we're only at peace when our emotions say that we can be at peace. Well, if we're only at peace when our emotions say that we can be at peace, then who's the God of our lives? It's not Jesus, it's our emotions. Another thought, thinking of the source of peace, is too often relationships in the church have the wrong source of peace. Relationships in the church are centered around the wrong source. And what happens when that happens is that those relationships just simply don't last. And they certainly don't glorify God either. Too often, relationships in the church are centered around things, or are, are centered around the idea of peace because, well, we just simply don't interact. I just kind of stay away from them because they drive me crazy. And don't say you don't, yeah, there's people who drive people crazy. There's people who drive me crazy. But my peace with them is not based upon whether or not they make me happy. We're at peace, and we can be at peace because of Jesus. Or maybe we're at peace with people around us in the body of Christ because we have much in common. Now, that's great. I'm glad you have much in common. But it should be Jesus and His peace that brings your relationships together. I'll tell you, if we're going to exhort each other and help each other work through sin, the only kind of Source of peace in relationship that will withstand the pain and the grueling task of helping each other work through sin is if Jesus is the one that brings peace to your relationship. Otherwise, you might as well kiss the relationship goodbye. Because as soon as you press on something that's just a little too touchy, that's just a little too much of a sacred cow in that person's life, because Jesus is not peace, your idea of peace isn't going to withstand that fire and that hurt. 
peace. Jesus is our peace. But Paul is saying here, he's saying here that our peace is totally and sufficiently Jesus Himself. If you want to write down something, write that one down. Jesus, Paul is saying here that our peace is totally and sufficiently Jesus Himself. He is our peace. We need no other peace. And I would say that to you, Christian, who struggles to follow Jesus, struggles to feel peace in your life. If you struggle to find peace, it's because you're trying to find it everywhere else. And we need, I stand with you today and say, you need no other peace except Jesus himself. Now that Paul's talking about this total and sufficiently Jesus himself as peace, now Paul is going to talk specifically about the peace that Jesus has brought. So with that, let's go here. We will move beyond the first six words. For he himself is our peace. Next, who has made us both one. He has made us both one. What is Jesus talking about there? He's made us both one. Here's what I want to say. Jesus has created a whole new race one with a new heart that loves god he has created a whole new race one with a new heart that loves god all right so here's what's going on paul has in mind here kind of two entities if you will two groups these two groups have been brought into a mutual relationship or unity that surpasses what these two groups once were. Make sense? So he's brought them to into a new group that surpasses what these two groups were. In accomplishing this, this new group, Christ has risen above one of the fundamental divisions of the first century world, namely Jews and Gentiles. That was a a fundamental division of the first century. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Jews, Gentiles, okay, okay, okay. But Paul is speaking here of that this division, that that Christ has risen above it in what He has done, who has made us both one. Now, I want to encourage you as we think through this, you've got to think beyond just, just racial, sociological issues. And that's where I'm going to take your mind to this morning. I think that's where the text takes us. That it's more than just the Jews didn't like the Gentiles. No, there's a fundamental reason why the Jews and the Gentiles didn't like each other. They were separated. And this fundamental reason is going to be very important for us even today. So the Jews, if you will, spoke of two groups, Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles spoke of two groups, the Jews and Gentiles. But Paul here, I believe, speaks of three groups. Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God. The church of Jesus Christ. You can go read 1 Corinthians 10 later. I think Paul speaks of three groups. Jews, Gentiles, the church of God. Christians, or the church of God, church of Christ, I don't mean the denomination, by the way, in either reference. What I mean is what the Bible means here. Those who follow Jesus, that these people are a third 
race, if you will, or a new race at the very least. Probably not a third race. Let me take that back. A second race, but a third group of people. They are a new race. Now, this is important, okay? So let's work through this. What what do we mean by this? What is going on? The first thing, if if you want to write down a sub-point, it's not on your bulletin, but I said this. He made us one by destroying the dividing wall, all right? That's what he says next. He has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What does he mean? What's the dividing wall of hostility? Think of it this way. Think of it as a fence. Think of it as a fence, Now, the most natural understanding of what he means by fence or this dividing wall, because we've got to ask, what is this dividing wall? And I think the most natural way of understanding this is helped us here in the, helped, uh, of understanding this is helped by the context. Some believe that this wall, just to tickle some of your fancies this morning, some believe this wall to be alluding to the courts of the temple. That there was the inner core and the Jewish core and the Gentile core and so on and so forth. And that those walls have been torn down and now they have access to God. I don't think that's the case here. I don't think that's the case because I don't think those in Ephesus probably really had any clue about that at this point in the game. I mean, we're talking about Gentiles in Ephesus. Maybe if these were Gentiles in Jerusalem. But, I don't, but they were not. I don't think they'd have any clue what Paul was talking about if that's what he was speaking of. I think the most natural understanding of this fence or this dividing wall, I think is the law. I think it's the law. I think the dividing wall of hostility is the law. The law itself provided a fence around Israel. I'm going to explain that a little bit further. So this dividing wall of hostility being the law. The law separated Jews from Gentiles, both religiously and sociologically. So that's what I said earlier. Don't think of division between the two just because of religion and just because of sociology, you know, sociological reasons or, or economical reasons, any of those kind of things. You've got to think of it in terms of the law as what's bringing about this religious and sociological separation and division. And the result of this was deep seated hostility between the two. I mean, think about it, right? The Jews had the means of salvation. They had the, at least the pathway spelled out to them in the text. And they were an enmity, oftentimes was caused by the Jews. And their separateness, if you will, was often accompanied by a sense of superiority on the Jews' part. We're better than you. Because we have the law. Because we have God's ways. We're better than you. I think that would cause a little bit of hostility, right? We still, linger, we still see lingering effects of that in our own country. But what does he say here? He says, but Christ abolished this hostility in his flesh. What does he mean by that? If he... If, if, the hostility, the dividing wall was the law. He says that Jesus abolished, that Jesus broke down this wall in his flesh. What does he mean? So I think through the perfect offering of himself, once and for all upon the cross, Jesus has done away with what has separated the Jew from the Gentile. Namely, the law of 
commandments, right? And we're going we're gonna, to we gotta take that a little bit further, but I want to pause for just a second. Christians, oftentimes we want to resurrect this wall of hostility in our own lives. We want to resurrect the law. How do we do that? How? Self-righteousness. That's all that is. I have my own law that I want to impose on other people. And all of that's based upon the presumption that you could even match your own law. You want to be at enmity with your spouse? It's probably because you're living by your own law instead of by grace. You've probably developed your own law of which you think you can actually even match and and keep yourself. And then when your spouse doesn't hit that law, whether that law is tied to Scripture or just something you fancied yourself, now you're at enmity with each other and you have built a dividing wall of hostility between you and your spouse. This happens with you and your kids. Same thing. You develop a wall of hostility. Why? What are you, you're bringing law into your relationship. Now, law has its place, right? But, but I'm not talking about that right now. It happens in churches. It happens in churches all the time. We, 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 get, we have strife between each other. Most of the time, it's because we've resurrected a wall of hostility. We've created a law... And we're no longer living by grace. You know, I termed it this in my notes, your own graceless law of morality. And that's oftentimes what it looks like. A graceless law of morality. Law can be grace-filled when it's understood rightly. But we're not talking about understanding it rightly right now. We're talking about understanding it wrongly. And understood wrongly is graceless. All right. So he made us one by destroying this dividing wall, abolishing the law of commandments. So he's the second subpoint, if you will. He's made us one by abolishing the law of commandments consisting in regulations. All right. I have to admit, like coming into reading this passage, I'm going, what is he talking about? Hence, I think I'll give this to Rusty to preach this week. What is he talking about? Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Uh, uh, Again, admittedly, these words are difficult, I think, to interpret. Abolished means really to make it no longer binding. I think that's what he means here. To make no longer binding. Then he says the law, all right, now let's talk about the law of commandments in ordinances, expressed in ordinances. So the law that has been abolished, I believe he's speaking of, is the Mosaic law. So of the commandments, again, if you're looking at your, if your Bibles or on the screen, the law of commandments, I think refers to the contents of the law, the actual content of the law. In ordinances, I think, refers to the form in which the commands are given. They're given in this form. The nature of their giving is in ordinances. So you have the content of the law being given in ordinances. Leave it at that for right now. Altogether, I think what's happening here is Paul is conveying a sense of oppressiveness by the law. The law's commandments. There's an oppressiveness here. Now, it's very important, right? You've you got to think 
got to think a little bit deeper with me this morning, okay? Follow me here. The law can have different aspects. Let me give you an example. I don't think, in this case, the law and all of its aspects are gone, are abolished by Jesus. Put it this way. The law and all of its purposes are abolished. Don't think that that's done. I don't think that's what Paul's communicating here. I think Paul is communicating that a particular aspect or purpose of the law has been abolished. So I would say this. It's not the law as revelation of the character and will of God that has been abolished. So the law still serves very much the purpose, I believe, in revealing the character and will of God. I don't think Jesus done, has done away with that. The, the, we could still go to the law and the purpose, at the very least, that it serves is to show us the character and nature, and the will of God. I mean, certainly Jesus himself believed that. He kept going back to the Old Testament. All the New Testament writers believe that because they keep going back to the, New Test, or to the Old Testament. But I think it's the law as a written code threatening death instead of imparting life that's been done away with by Christ. So it's this idea of the law pointing out and, and showing that we are evil and threatening death that's been done away with because now we have life in Christ. And I think since Paul, basically what he does at this point, if he talked about circumcision earlier, and he basically says that's of no, it's of no concern then now he gets into this law. I think the law he's expressing here is the commanding focus of the law. The law in terms of its requirements. I think that's what is, he is abolishing. That the law in terms of its requirements. Because he fulfills those things. So think of it this way. The law, the Mosaic law, as a whole, conceived as a covenant okay the covenant whereby through this covenant we can be right with god that that has been abolished that that is done so that law then that divides these two people has been abolished not saying that it's useless it's not what jesus is saying but that it as a means of entering into right relationship with god has been done away with. Remember, you've got to remember that that law that Jesus is saying has been done away with, has been abolished, was only given to the Jews. It's been done away with. Jesus comes, right? So why? So the next question is why? Another sub-point. Why? To create one new man. To create one new man. Now, Here's what you need to think here with me, okay? You need to think new creation. You need to think another creation. You need to think second Adam, right? First Adam being the one in the garden who messed everything up, him and his wife. And you got to think second Adam who births this new race that will not mess everything up, did not mess everything up, lived everything perfectly, so earning the righteousness that the first Adam could not do. 
So think new Adam, second Adam, if you will, new human race. This is literally what Paul is getting at here. There's a new race in town. Right? Jesus is the, the Adam, the firstborn of this new race. So just as Jesus was the creator of humanity in the beginning with Adam and Eve, Jesus is also the creator now of a new humanity through His life, death, and resurrection. He's the new Adam. He's the head of this race as where the head of the fallen race is Adam of Genesis 1. Jesus is the head of this race. So this is a new corporate identity. That's where I think this third group comes from. This new identity is the people of Christ. So you see the barriers that divided people from one another, these racial, religious, cultural, social, the law, these things are all abolished in Christ, who is all and is in all. So here's what you got to think of. Going back to the Old Testament, think Tower of Babel. What happens in the Tower of Babel? God disperses all of them and all of their languages are different and the people are divided and there's confusion at the Tower of Babel and all the people go their separate ways because they can't communicate and and they can't get along and and they're struggling so they just go do their own thing in their own parts of the country. What do we see here? We see God bringing people back together to be one people, a people who worship Him. The Tower of Babel was simply signifying and symbolizing a division between people that the gospel would ultimately reunite together. She's talking about here an entirely new entity, an entirely new creation was needed in order to transcend the deep rift that was between the Jews and the Gentiles. He doesn't, here's what I'm going to say, he doesn't, Paul, Paul didn't talk about, Jesus, Jesus doesn't create something from the best of the two groups. He didn't just take the best of these, the best of these, and put them together. No, he does something completely different. This new creation is not about making Gentiles into Jews or making Jews into Gentiles. It's about an entirely new people. It's, the new, it's this new creation whereby Christ truly makes peace. It's these new people that Christ will have peace with. He will be their peace. Now I want to take you back into Ephesians, verse 10 of chapter 1. Go there with me. It's not going to be on the screen. It says here, it says, making, verse 9 rather, making, nine to us the mystery, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. What is Paul talking about in verse 10 of chapter 1? Most fundamentally, he is talking about what we just read. And that is the making of this new race. A people that will be united in Jesus Christ. So this part right here, this uniting that he's, ta- he's talking about here, is a very fundamental and significant step toward the fulfillment of verse 10 of chapter 1. He will unite all things in Jesus. First big fundamental primary step towards that, the making of a new people. The making of a new people. 
So, Christian, follow Jesus. You live as one who is a part of the new creation. One is at peace with God. Do you live as though you are at peace with God? Many of you don't because you think your peace comes from yourself. Your peace does not come from yourself. It comes from Jesus Himself. If you're still trying to be at peace with God by your own means, then maybe, and most likely, that's because you don't believe Jesus' peace is sufficient. Which could mean you're just not a follower of Jesus. And you need to repent and place your faith in Him as the one who has made you at peace with God. We can't play games with this. We don't play games with who has made us at peace with God. That's not a game to play. That is something to surrender to. You know, one who is not under the law as a means of salvation, but we are under the law of grace. Where the power of the Spirit, where in the power of the Spirit, you live to glorify God by living out the Spirit of the law. What I mean by that is that your peace comes not from obeying the law. Most fundamentally, it comes from Jesus. But then, as one who is in Christ now, you now live out the spirit and in the heart of the law. So the law has a place in there. But when the law is propped up as a means of peace and salvation, uh, then it becomes our own mode of salvation, causing then enmity in our lives and strife. But also, Christian, I want to say this. He has united us to each other. If God has broken broken down the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles, then there is nothing that should stand in the way of our unity. If God could break down and abolish that wall of hostility, then certainly He can break down the walls of our hostility, whether that's age differences, music preferences, or things we like to talk about, or how we think about things, all that stuff. We can, God can certainly break down those walls of hostility. So, so far, Paul's focus has been on this kind of horizontal relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Now Paul will turn to the vertical relationship. He says, By His death on the cross, Jesus has reconciled us both in one body to God. So why? So if you want another sub-point, why? To reconcile both to God. To reconcile both to God. Why has He done this? To reconcile both to God. Verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I want to point out here, Christ is the one here doing the reconciling. God is the one to whom we are reconciled to. Don't miss this. The one body, he says there is a reference now to the church. This one body is a reference to the church. The church of Christ. The church of Jesus. Now, here's what I want you to see, okay? The presupposition here is that not only were the Gentiles alienated from God, but also Israel. Okay? 
in verses 11 through 13, and we talked about last week, the past two weeks rather, it is clear that the Gentiles were separated from the community of God, God's people, and separated from the covenants of promise, salvation. But here, Paul is indicating that even the elect nation of Israel, which was the recipient and steward of God's gracious covenant promises, had not as a whole experienced and appropriated the promise of salvation itself. Israel, too, was alienated from God. That's what Paul is indicating here. Both were under sin, and both needed to be reconciled to God. Now, this is important. We're going to talk about why this is important in just a second. So the law... (laughs) That's Silas. Hi, Silas. The law also separated Israel from God. See, that's what's, that's what's magnificent and just crazy when we think about the Jews is that the, the law not only separated the Jews from the Gentiles, but it separated the Jews from God as well. Both under sin, both alienated from God. So what's the point? Why, what is Paul saying here? What, what's the theological importance for us today? It's this. The statement being made here is that the only means of reconciliation is through Jesus Christ. The only means of reconciliation is through Jesus Christ. It says that he killed the hostility. The slain was the slayer. The slain was the slayer. The hostility between Jews and Gentiles is gone, and so is the hostility between both these groups and God. So my question for just practically coming out of this is, is there still hostility between you and God? Is there still hostility between you and God? So if you're here and you're saying, I think I'm a Christian, I I think so, I don't know that I could point to any evidences necessarily or scripture that would, would help support that, but if, if you're not sure, if, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, let's assume for a second that you're not. There is hostility between you and God because you've not been made right with God. There is hostility there, and hostility is not a good thing. Your sin that the law exposes is hostile in your relationship with God. It, it makes you an enemy of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be an enemy with God. I don't even want to be neutral with God, but I certainly don't want to be an enemy with God. But we know that the good news that Paul is talking about here is that Jesus, through His blood, He dies on the cross to pay the penalty that's due your sin and my sin. And if you would repent of your righteousness your law, and place your trust in Jesus as the one who paid for your sin. Submit to Him as your Savior and your Lord. Then your hostility with God will be wiped away. Not because of anything you do, but because of what Jesus did. And then I'd say to Christian, for those of you who are positionally in Christ, you stand as a child of God. You have no hostility between you and and the Father. There is none. There is none. God, Jesus has taken it away. 
positionally, you have no hostility. At the same time, I want to say this. When you position yourself against God's authority, plan, and will for your life, you are being hostile toward God. Okay? You are bringing hostility into the relationship. When you say, no, God, I don't want to do it your way, or I don't want to figure out what your way is, you are welcoming hostility into your relationship. Now, positionally, that will not change. So that's the beauty. Like the prodigal son, his position as son never changed. So the father welcomed him back home because it was never based upon his performance anyways. But I want to encourage you, as we talk about all this, like positionally, this is who I am in Christ. Christian, we can't forget that we can welcome hostility into our relationship. All right. So, having dealt with Christ's work of reconciliation, here's what happens. Paul now turns to his proclamation of peace to both Gentiles and Jews. So we're going to kind of shift gears here just a hair for the last little bit. I want you to see this. Christ has proclaimed peace to those both near and far. Christ has proclaimed peace to those both near and far. Now there's a theological importance of this for us today, but I need to explain a couple things before we get to that. Paul is again saying here that Jesus was needed for both Jews and Gentiles. It wasn't just for the Gentiles. He's needed for both. He is salvation for all people, and all people need salvation in Christ. Ephesians 2.17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. Who's he speaking of there? The Gentiles. And to those who were near. I think he's referring to the Jews. Isaiah 52.7. Let's look at a couple Old Testament passages here. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Isaiah 57.19, the second part of that. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. So these are Old Testament prophecies of one who would come and preach peace but a peace that surpassed just the peace between us in this world ultimately a peace with god so here's a couple things i want you to see here christ himself is the evangelist he is the proclaimer of the gospel he is the one who came first proclaiming the good news of salvation through jesus christ and his death on the cross. He is the. His announcement, announcement which is based on his death on the cross, is a royal proclamation that hostilities are at an end, that it's been brought to conclusion. When you proclaim, so here's some implications of this for us. When you proclaim the good news of salvation to your friends, be encouraged. Why? Because Jesus is ultimately the evangelist. You're just proclaiming His good news. It's His good news, and He proclaimed it first. Why? Because He created the good news. He, his Father planned the good news. He enacted and lived out and brought to reality the good news and has proclaimed it with His death, life, and with His mouth. 
The other thing to encourage you with is that you're living out your missionary identity when you proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ as Savior of the world. Why? Because Jesus is the first missionary. He is the missionary. But also, if Jesus is the evangelist, ultimately, then I want to encourage you then that the results are Jesus' responsibility. They're His. He is the one that commands people's hearts. Second kind of sub-point, if you will, is Christ is an evangelist, I think we see here, to all nations. And that's another implication of this passage. Those who are far off, those who are near, that Jesus is concerned with the nations. He's concerned with all people, all tribes, all tongues, all races. God has a heart for all people. God's heart is that at the foot of His throne, there would be people worshiping Him from every tribe and tongue. And I want to encourage us as a church, we need to pray harder, asking God to give us a heart for every nation and how we will be used to reach them. Paul's intent here is to point us to the fact that all humanity was and is in need of the work of Jesus Christ, not just the Gentiles. Not just the Gentiles. Those far off and those near. To all people, Christ is the evangelist who proclaims peace and reconciliation with God from whom they had once been alienated. That's what Jesus comes and does. That's our responsibility. I mean, do you understand, church, do you understand this? That the world is alienated. The world around you, your co-workers, your neighbors, are alienated from God and will go to hell. And in some minute measure are experiencing it even now. Do you realize that? That they are at enmity and hostility with God. That your neighbor here and the lost little girl worshiping Buddha in another country. All of humanity is in need of the work of Christ. And our call is to go proclaim it. We leave it up to God to do the results, but we go proclaim. We go share the good news. Why? Because God has a heart for the nations. Because God has a heart for your neighbor. All right. We must get to the last point here. Because Jesus is our peace, He is peace Himself. He has come. God has placed our sin upon His shoulder and made peace with us. God has made peace with us. We could never make peace with God. That's why it's such a futile task that we would try to do that now. That your neighbor would try to be at peace with God by hoping that the scale of morality outweighs their immorality someday. I mean, that's crazy. It's not a matter of one outweighing the other. It's the fact that there's any immorality there. It doesn't matter if if your morality puts the weight on the ground and your immorality is way up here because there's barely anything on it. The fact that there's something on it means that you're not at peace with God. That has to be taken care of. And this over here would never be enough anyways. So God makes peace with us. Because we have peace, we're no longer alienated from God, from each other, and we have been reconciled. Now the ground, if you will, the, the 
preparing, the preparation for the abolishing of this alienation, right? the crushing of the wall of hostility, the new race of man in Christ as it's said, this peace with God, kind of the ground, the preparation for this is the last point here. Is through Jesus we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have access in one spirit to the Father. We talked a little bit last week about the presence of God being the ultimate goal and being the means by which God accomplishes that goal. Right? So ultimately the goal is that God would dwell at peace with his people. His presence would be with his people. Revelation 21. Just like it was in the garden, but without any chance of sin. So here we see that this access in one spirit to the Father is his people being transformed by the presence of the Father. This one new person, this new race now has, has access in one spirit to the Father. I mean, to understand, for thousands of years, the access to the Father is not the same as it is now. That through this one spirit, verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There's so many implications of this, but here we go. The focus is on our continuing relationship with the Father, which is a result of Christ's act of reconciliation. So Christ has brought about reconciliation. We have access, ongoing access to the Father. Now, if the goal is Revelation 21, that we would dwell in His presence, What's happening now? We dwell in His presence. We have access to the Father. Jew and Gentile stand together as one people in God's presence with the old distinctions no longer having any significance. In Christ, what's happened, Paul says, is that they both have become family members of God. That his children, as we see Jesus do, are able to address him as what? Abba, Father, right? As Abba, Father. I don't know. You know, one of the things, just as a personal testimony, that continues to encourage my life on and on. I mean, I have a wonderful earthly father, certainly. But the fact that I can call God my father, that I can call him my father. Why is that so significant? Because it means I'm a child of His. Right? In our culture today, we've, well, everyone's a child of God. No, not everyone's a child of God. Only those bought by the blood of Jesus are children of God. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. Otherwise, to call God Father, who cares? No, it means something. It means God has changed me. Not because I've done anything special so that no superiority can take place, none of that, no boasting in myself. Call him father, because I'm his child. So both 
of these groups becoming, and, and when I say these groups, Paul's not saying the entirety of the Gentiles, the entirety of the Jews have now been made right with God. No, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying that the distinctions of these groups has ended, and that both of these groups can have people that who were once spiritually dead can be made alive. He talks about this one spirit. What's he mean by this in one spirit? I think what he, is this is corresponding, I think, to one body. So this is the idea of in unity. Like in the spirit, you people can come together to Jesus, or, to, or rather to the Father. And again, I think what he does here is he stresses the oneness, the unity of these, this new race that constitutes the church. I want to encourage you, when you look around this room, do you understand that you access the Father via the same way and in the same Spirit? Can you also see that if you, as an individual, try to access the Father by any means other than the one Spirit, the one way, how that would cause great disunity with your brothers and sisters who are accessing the Father via the one Spirit? You see that? Because what's the other option to accessing the Father via the Spirit? Well, it's not really an option, but it's a try. And what is the only other way that you can try to access the Father? It's by your law. And what happens when the law gets resurrected? A dividing wall of hostility goes up. And what happens then? Jew-Gentile. What happens in the church? Same thing. What happens in your family with your spouse? Same thing. One spirit. I also want to, I don't want to miss this either. See Paul's Trinitarian proclamation here, okay? Just very very briefly. Don't miss this. Christ's peacemaking work. Christ is the one making the peace because he himself is our peace. Has provided access to who? The Father? By what? The Spirit. See the Trinity, right? Amen. New creation, old creation, Trinity, new creation. See the Trinity. It's marvelous. As my professor in seminary would say, put on your Trinitarian lenses. All right, so let's land this plane this morning. So he, who is our peace, follow with me as I wrap this up. So he who is our peace has brought peace between all of God's children, ultimately by making peace between the children and the Father. But where there is no peace between God's people, there is no peace with God. I mean, those are, these things correspond. Christians who live at peace with one another should understand that it's only because the law has been abolished, grace has come, and they have been made at peace by grace with God because of Jesus' work. I want to encourage you, church, if you have been made new through Jesus, then we together have access to the Father. Like, we together 
as a church of, uh, it has to be saved people, but as a gathering rather of redeemed people, of saved people, we together, church, have access to the Father. That's incredible. Have access to the Father. What? Like, none of us could phone up the most important person in this world, you know, that is out of touch, right? So maybe, you know, you got that superstar you really like, or that, you know, like, I'd love to talk with Aaron Rodgers, right? Like, that'd be cool. Like, dude, how do you do it, man? That's just sweet, you know? Like a sniper rifle on your arm somehow. Like, it's just crazy. Peyton Manning used to have one of those. You're not doing so well. Like, I, I couldn't, like, there's no way, right? I mean, unless I'm going to offer uh, an endorsement, you know, some kind of money or something. Like, there's just no way. How much greater you and I have access to Abba Father. We have access to that. And yet, we spend many, many days in sorrow or lacking joy or whatever. Why? Because we're wallowing as if we don't have access to the Father. You have access to the Father. And if you didn't earn it, it's nothing you do to keep it. Jesus keeps it. Your access to the Father is not dependent upon your emotions. It's not dependent upon your self-righteousness. It is through Jesus and His peace alone that we, by the Spirit, have access to the Father. But I also want to encourage you with this. When you choose to do things your own way instead of God's way, you're inviting hostility into the relationship. God has told you. What, how do we, so how do, we, how do we like avoid some of that? I just want to encourage you with this, Matthew 4.4. 4. But He answered, it is written, this is Jesus saying this, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. What words can you be sure come from the mouth of God? Because you can, you can never be sure that the words up here are actually coming from God. These words right here come from God. You can be sure. And Jesus says, you should not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. I want to encourage you. One of the ways to avoid bringing hostility in your relationship is to live on God's Word. And I want to encourage you with this. This is my last thought. That though when you fail to do so, when you fail and you invite hostility into your relationship with God, that you want to do it your own way, I want to encourage you just to repent and believe that you have access to the Father, not by your own doing, but through Jesus, your Savior, who is what? He's your peace. Amen? He's your peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus is our peace. Father, thank you that we who could conjure up no peace only war and enmity and strife that He who is our peace has brought us near. 
that He has made peace for us, that He mediates peace to us, that He gives peace to us, Father, that He is peace in us. And we can have peace in our marriages, in our relationships. We can have peace with our parents. We have peace with, with, <clears throat> with our co-workers. We can have peace with these people because peace is not based upon this world. It's based upon Jesus who is our peace. And Father, we're even commanded to live peaceably with all people. And we know, Father, in situations where others are not believers in Jesus as their peace, that we can't control what they do, but Father, we certainly can live at peace so far as it concerns us. And Father, the last thing I pray, just in these next few moments, that we would ask, our, each of us would ask ourselves this question, is Jesus my source of peace? Or am I trying to find peace someplace else? Father, may you lead our hearts that have gone astray when they go astray to find their way back to peace in your son Jesus. For it's in his name we pray.